Hi, and welcome to PodCash, the portable CPD and best practice podcast from Cash. My name's Dawn, and I'm the editor of Cash Alumni, the fastest growing network of current and future professionals in care, health, and education. You can join us for free at www.cashalumni.org.uk and get access to articles from subject specialists and experts. You can get access to a discount and benefits scheme and lots of support with career development and your future growth. We look forward to welcoming you as a member. But right now, let's get on with the podcast. So hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast, which is in support and promotion of Healthcare Science Week, which is running from the 14th to the 20th of March. My name's Joe Neem and I'm the Science Subject Specialist here at NCFE. We'll be discussing the importance of healthcare science with our guests today, as well as the amazing work that they do. And so without further ado, I'm going to hand over to them just to ask them to introduce themselves. Okay. Uh, hi everyone, uh, my name is Matt Gardner, I'm uh, w- uh, with Davinda, one of the co-directors of the Science Saves programme, uh, which exists to raise the profile of healthcare science, its staff and its careers. Um, prior to that, and also now also part-time, I am a clinical scientist in an NHS radiation protection department. I'm Davinda Gardner, I'm also one of the directors of the Science Saves programme, and four days a week I work in the NHS as a clinical scientist in radiotherapy. Brilliant. Um, Now, uh, so the first question is, could you tell me a bit more about those roles? Because, you know, coming from a background in biochemistry myself, like I've not a clue what those jobs are. So just if you could give us a bit more information about what those roles are and what you do day to day. Definitely. So, yeah, I find with healthcare science, no one really knows well not many people seem to know what a healthcare scientist does but um we're quite a diverse bunch and what i do in particular i work in radiotherapy and what i do is i help test radiotherapy machines and that's essentially checking that they're performing as they should be and that therefore patients are getting the correct treatments i also help plan radiotherapy treatments for patients so essentially i use images from inside their body, um, CT images, and I plan and aim radiation at their cancer whilst trying to minimise the radiation that is delivered to other healthy organs, because the aim is not just to treat their cancer, but to ensure that they've got a good quality of life afterwards. The other side of my job is to do sort of research and implement any new and innovative techniques that might be good for our patients. So yeah, that's my role. And yes, I uh, work more in uh, imaging and radiation protection. Um, So that's things like uh, checking the dose, the radiation dose rates that come out of X-ray equipment, uh, checking the image quality of that X-ray equipment to make sure that it's working the way it should do. Um, I also spend quite a bit of time at the minute uh, monitoring patient dose and carrying out uh, radiation dose audits for X-ray departments and things like that. Uh, Again, making sure that the doses of radiation that the X-ray imaging equipment is given is as it should. And a big part of radiation protection is about making sure that hospital departments who are using uh, radiation to benefit patients are still managing to comply with all of the legal and safety requirements that there are uh, around using radiation to get the best possible benefit out of it. So that to me, it sounds like quite a high pressure job. Do, do you feel that day to day? Does it feel like 
quite high pressure or, you know, are you ever worried working? Because obviously radiation is one of those buzzwords that, you know, people will hear uh, and think, oh, you know, oh gosh. So is that something you feel day to day, that pressure? Uh, you can do, yeah. So I think, um, I think one of the key things about radiation protection is that um, we want to try and get the best possible benefit we can out of it because there's a lot of benefits of using uh, radiation in terms of you know being able to image the patient and make diagnosis about being able to treat cancer and various other things um, but I guess what we're trying to achieve is that balance between using it but at the same time kind of respecting the potential to cause harm uh, and trying to make sure that we're using it in the best way possible to make sure it's as safe uh, as, it, as we can make it. Um, yeah I think we're another profession in the healthcare setting so Sometimes in my role, and I think you'll have this as well, um, there's often that conversation with other um, providers, so doctors, for example. So let's say I'm doing some testing on a machine and a radiographer is saying, well, actually, we've got a bunch of patients here um, that we need to treat. And I'm saying, actually, I don't know if this is safe yet. Um, I know and I'm aware that you've got a lot of people need to put through a machine and that's important but equally I can't give it to you until I'm 100% certain it's safe so yeah there's a lot of those conversations I'd say that's it's probably similar with you and your line of work on occasion it is well, yeah that, that can definitely happen so again when you're testing a piece of x-ray equipment and obviously there's a lot of pressure on NHS services these days to kind of bring as many patients through as quickly as we can um so in a way yeah we're the people who just uh, sometimes have to slow things down just a little bit to kind of make sure that the equipment's working uh the way it should be doing and that everything's kind of working safely yeah so and obviously you know we probably wouldn't have got through the session without mentioning it but with the with the pandemic and such like is that ramping up even further have those pressures always obviously been there but then that's even more given the current landscape yeah i think what we're seeing um at the minute in um as radiotherapy as an example is that and and again i can't quite i don't have access to the wider picture so i'm not sure why this is but our workload has massively ramped up now sort of the pandemic sort of receding whereas obviously in the initial stages the workload did quieten down quite significantly what i have found is that people are coming forward and they seem to be sicker um yeah. so there is that as well and so the only thing i can say to that is that yeah it's just really important that now everything's sort of, particularly now everything's going back to normal, to have those checkups, to go to GPs where needed, and yeah, just keep doing that. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, like you say, radiotherapy is a very targeted therapy. Mm -hmm. So, is it is it just a particular set of can cancers, particularly Udavinda, that you work with, um, or can it be multiple? Yeah, there's um, multiple sites. Um, mm -hmm. Certain cancers will never be treated with radiotherapy, whereas for certain cancers, it is pretty much part of the standard protocol. So yeah, I wouldn't see anything like leukemia, for example, but I'd see um, a lot of things like breast or prostate cancers and many more besides. But yeah, just to give a couple of examples. Um, so next, uh, next official question then, what, what has been your best experiences as healthcare scientists? Um, and it could, it could be something, you know, to do with your role. It could be, you know, something else entirely, but just what's, what's been your best experiences as healthcare scientists? So um, for me, I was thinking about this one a while ago, and there was, um, there's one thing that happened uh, a few years ago to me that I think um, in a lot of ways summed up why I kind of got into healthcare science, which was uh, I was working with ultraviolet therapy uh, machines, which are used to treat uh, different skin conditions with ultraviolet light. And um, uh, a few of the nurses who work in that area kind of came to me and said, um, we want to be able to kind of know roughly 
if we give a patient a certain dose of UV, how long should that take? Um, so that we know how long the patient's going to be standing in this machine. Uh, and also we know that if it looks like something's gone wrong, like if they've been in there too long or something like that, it just helped them to kind of have a bit of a feel for how long these treatments should take. Uh, because the the machines just use a sensor that basically once the right dose is given, they'll, uh, they'll cut out. Um, so I took some measurements of the brightness of the different lamps and, uh, and found that it actually it wasn't a consistent brightness. It kind of changed a little bit um, over time. So I ended up kind of plotting a graph of kind of the brightness of the lamps with time. And then I kind of went back to my A-level maths and kind of plotted an equation to that graph and then integrated an equation uh, and rearranged it for time and managed to predict how long these treatments should take. Um, and... Actually, I got really geekily excited about it because I'd kind of basically done a measurement, done a bit of A-level maths, rearranged an equation and kind of come out with some data that actually really helped the nurses and they felt a much more comfortable kind of using these machines, that they had a better feel for the way they were going to work because of the uh, information we were able to give them. So, yeah, I, I did. Yeah, I was quite happy with that, that, you know, we, we took a measurement, we did a bit of theory, did the maths and then kind of managed to predict something that was actually really useful for the nurses then allowed them to kind of operate a bit more efficiently and make them a bit more confident using the machines. Um, so yeah, I think that was a really big highlight for me. And yeah, it's one of the reasons I got into healthcare science was that that kind of application of science and maths in a kind of way that benefits patients. Spoken like a true physicist there. Like. <laughs> What, what about you, Davinda? Have you got a best experience in healthcare science? A lot of my job is um, quite standardised now. So if you come in for radiotherapy for a particular site, um, you outline um, the tumour, you outline certain organs, and then, yeah, you plan it according to a very particular strict protocol because you know that works from trials. There are times where you have to deviate from that, and um, that might be because a patient's, a, you know, got a particular set of anatomy or a particular uh, assessment by the doctor has indicated, well, they won't tolerate this particular thing, the standard thing. So, yeah, there's been a couple of times where essentially I can't follow the standard procedure and we have had to have conversations, uh, multidisciplinary team conversations uh, with the doctor, with any radiographers, with, I don't know, the nurse who's been looking after them and a whole range of staff to sort of come together and sort of say, well, actually, we're going to have to do something non-standard here. And what can it be? What can the patient tolerate? So I guess to give a particular example, um, there was a patient once who I saw with um, a site that needed treating in their abdomen, and it was surrounded entirely by vital organs. So you had the stomach, the duodenum, the intestines, and it was all... The tumour was very mobile because your digestive system is and obviously the organs were mobile around it. So it was a whole thing of, well, we could fire something to it, but there's a there's a so many percent chance that actually what you're firing at that time might not be to the tumour. It might be to an organ. So, yeah, it was kind of like then having to discuss with the doctors, how do we go forward with this? What can we do? Um, bringing obviously our own expertise into it. And then we actually did find a way forward for the patient and the treatment went okay. 
So is, is, is there like a, a threshold in terms of that? So in terms of the percentage, if, if that percentage exceeds a threshold, then it's just a, a no-go and, and you can't do that treatment sort of thing? Yeah, I think um, what you tend to have is, yeah, there's, there's certain things from trials which say that, yeah, if a certain percentage of the organ receives this much dose or if the maximum dose received by an organ is this much, certain effects will occur. Now, some organs, there might be a bit of latitude to tolerate something over that. Um, some organs, absolutely not. So the spinal cord, for example, is a good example of that. If you go above a certain dose, it's like, no, you, it just can't be done. And you've just got to essentially compromise what you treat because obviously there's no point in killing the patient just to cure their cancer. So, yeah. And, and Matt, was that, you, you talked about that being shared with, and was that something then that was shared further? Obviously, it was shared with the nurses you were working with. Was it shared further than that? Was it word of mouth that nurses started talking to each other and saying, you know, this is the amount of time they could have um, that treatment? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think um, in that case, it was more kind of like the methods that we kind of developed um, was more the thing that would kind of be shareable because I think that the numbers we came out with in terms of kind of predicted treatment times would depend a lot on the brightness of the lamps in those machines and every machine you have is a little bit different um, you know the brightness might be slightly different the age of the machine is going to affect uh, that brightness um, so the numbers themselves uh, wouldn't really work anywhere else but I think kind of the method we developed might um, so yeah which is why I think it's really important that you you know you have healthcare scientists in hospitals and not just kind of working in isolation in centralized places because you need that kind of local expertise a lot of the time so is, is that you mentioned that is that something that was potentially or is potentially happening that it's becoming more centralized you're seeing or is it that healthcare scientists are still very much in the hospital um, or is it a mixture of both um, I think they are still very much um, in the hospital I think it, it depends on different um, specialisms um, uh, some areas like um, say in my area in radiation protection there tend to be more kind of like regional centers that kind of serve a few different hospitals in their kind of region um, obviously I think uh, radiotherapy I think you'll find that any kind of hospital that offers radiotherapy would have its own uh, radiotherapy physicists uh, would you say that's true yeah yeah, yeah so that's true yeah. yeah whereas say something like pathology you might actually have a pathologist off-site or pathology lab somewhere else as opposed to needing radiation equipment needing immediate you know checking and such like yeah, for yourselves yeah, right. yeah perfect um so i think you've you probably answered it through your experiences but what what initially drew you to healthcare science especially medical physics what initially drew you drew you that way so we actually both had um, a similar yeah. experience in that we both had a physics degree we both undertook a physics degree i think Again, we both wanted to do something like yeah. an astrophysics. That's, you know, that's sort of like, you go do physics, yeah, you want to go into space, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. And then partway through, I slowly realised that actually that wasn't for me. Um, yeah, it was a bit too abstract for my liking. Um, I wouldn't be motivated by something where the applications were so abstract, as amazing as it is. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, the idea that, there was a way that I could use the skills, like the problem solving skills I'd got, and use the science that I'd learned to actually produce, sort of directly influence patient outcomes. That was definitely a lot more up my street, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and similar, Matt? Yeah, very similar experience. Yeah, I, I went to university and did physics, wanting to be an astrophysicist. Um, 
because that just seemed to be where I wanted to go at the time. Uh, I think then when I actually kind of studied astrophysics, yeah, I found it's it's very abstract, very advanced. There's a lot of blue sky thinking involved. And I don't want to say that that's not important and so it's not interesting because it is. It's very interesting and very important that we do that kind of research. Um, but I think for me, I wanted something a little bit closer to home, you know, a little bit um, real world. So I think when I kind of discovered medical physics, which wasn't even until the final year of my degree, um, I just found that that fitted really well with what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of do physics in a bit more of an applied kind of way. So I think when I realised that you could use physics in a hospital um, and then, you know, directly benefit patients and, you, you know, you could start to see that. Uh, benefit very early on I just thought yeah this is this is what I want to do and then yeah right from there I started kind of pursuing that as a career yeah I, th I think you've stumbled upon a, an argument in science and in learning in general it's you know it's about pursuing what you enjoy fundamentally because then the hard work doesn't seem as hard anymore yes. um and you know it's and it's not because different things aren't interesting it's just because it's what you you genuinely enjoy and um, just looping back around because obviously you were talking about the maths and the method you came up with Matt and that you know when you have to have those different discussions what what different skills do you apply? I think you've touched upon them, but just what different skills do you apply as healthcare scientists? Day I think to one day? of the big things that you really get in healthcare science, um, which I think, I, yeah, I've touched on before about, you know, where the question comes from. It comes from nurses who are working directly with their patients and want to be able to do that um, more efficiently or more safely and this kind of thing. And you work as part of a very varied team in a kind of healthcare setting. So, you know, we work with nurses, radiographers, uh, radiologists, um, other healthcare scientists who might work in kind of completely different specialisms. And you've got to kind of work in that environment and talk to people who have been trained in completely different ways and might use different terminology even to what you're trying to talk to them about. So I think kind of communication and the ability to kind of get on with people who in some cases might even have different priorities because obviously you know it's a different conversation it's a difficult conversation to have sometimes when you're testing a piece of equipment and you've got someone who just needs to get that equipment back in service very quickly and your priority um is that you've got to finish the testing you do to make sure it's safe and you've got those kind of different things which are both important so i think that that ability to kind of communicate and put across a message and understand a message from teams of people who come from a completely different training background and might even want subtly different things sometimes um, can be quite a challenge and I think it's probably one of the skills that is really needed for a healthcare scientist and some healthcare scientists um, so in, in in physics possibly not so much all the time but in some healthcare sciences you work kind of directly with the patient so you know you've got to have that ability to put people at ease and put across what you're doing and the importance of it in a really kind of understandable way. Um, so I think that's one of the key things that a healthcare scientist uses is their kind of communication and negotiation skills. Yeah. You're not always going to have, you're going to have pretty good equipment. You might not always have exactly the equipment that you want. So sometimes thinking on your feet about how you can still do a test with what you have or test for a problem. Uh, yeah, you do have to do a bit of problem solving in that regard. And obviously, as we've heard, the math skills have come in handy as yeah. well. <laughs> Perfect. Um, in terms of, so next question, um, and this is more of a broad one, and um, 
just me being nosy more than anything. <laughs> have you always enjoyed science? What did you have other favourite subjects at school, or was science always something you thought I want to go on and and pursue something in this? Uh, yes, for me definitely. And um, so, um, how I got into it was I actually I watched. Um, I'm, so I'm a, I'm a typical. I might be saying I'm a typical physicist in this, but uh, well anyway, I watched a lot of Star Trek when I was a kid, um, <laughs> and I annoyed Avinda with it all the time. Uh, telling her about it um and yeah i kind of ended up getting quite fascinated in physics kind of through that um so yeah i think i think for me physics was always my favorite subject in school it was what i always um wanted to do um right from probably just starting secondary school i knew i wanted to work in physics in some kind of way i didn't quite know which bit of physics that um that early on but i always knew i wanted um to do physics um, and was it the was it was it the Star Trek link that led you down the astrophysics route initially? Was, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably how I got into it. Yeah, uh, Devinda. Uh, yeah, so I used to really like learning about things like atoms and space when I was little. So I really enjoyed that side of physics in particular. But I also really liked maths, which is obviously you know tends to go hand in hand with physics quite a lot. Um, but I also really like um, particularly dead languages, so um, I've enjoyed studying a bit of Latin and Greek in the past as well, so that's a, <laughs> that's a bit of, sort of a, of a tangent, but there you go. <laughs> Oh no! I enjoyed science and enjoyed drama, so you know there's yeah. there's, there's lots of different mixes out there. Um, but no, brilliant. Um, and um, we mentioned it actually, but at the start. But I suppose we should come up. What is Science Saves? Because we mentioned Science Saves at the start. Um, you both from Science Saves. What is Science Saves? Um, so Science Saves kind of essentially deals with um, healthcare science outreach in a kind of fun, approachable kind of way. Um, so our original plan was we designed, well, we still have uh, kind of hands-on interactive workshops kind of demonstrating different aspects of science in the hospital setting and kind of talking about uh, their talking about the career options that that brings. Um, so we wanted to, well, we founded Science Saves to kind of work with schools uh, kind of directly to kind of bring um, scientists and trainees and students in who either are in healthcare science and aspire or aspire to health to do a healthcare science career. Um, and get them delivering those outreach programs and inspiring people in schools about healthcare science. Um, obviously, the we started doing that in it was uh, late 2019, mm -hmm. early 2020. Um, mm -hmm. What we didn't see come in was a global pandemic, and so we had to put a lot of that um, on hold um, for a period. Um, during which time we kind of done have uh, done a bit of work online um, and launched a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but so imagine, so I'm I'm going to pretend here. So you you've got a student and you, you're doing one of your science saves session, and they ask you why is healthcare science important? What what would you what would your initial response or a broad response be to to that question? So there's an illustration I quite like to use, which I have to credit the NHS careers for, which is um, a case study of a um, basically an army officer who ends up in a hypothetical scenario, perhaps losing a leg in battle and has to be sort of flown back and tries to recover from that. So in this person's healthcare pathway, firstly, there's obviously sorting out what's happened to the limb. So it's people from infection control, scientists from infection control getting involved. It's um, those people looking after the equipment in A&E, 
um, they're involved as well. There'll be scientists um, in the sort of haematology department uh, or looking at blood transfusions and that kind of thing. And that's the immediate care. In the long-term care, he'd have to have things like CT scans, which again, scientists manage and maintain those equipment, that equipment. He might need some kind of um, physiotherapy. There are healthcare scientists in that field. And also he might need a prosthetic. And again, healthcare scientists are involved in that field too. So all along that pathway, there are healthcare scientists along the way, whether they see this patient or not, they're involved very deeply in making sure that he gets from initial injury to some form of recovery. Yeah, yeah. I think um, for me, I think um, doctors and nurses are definitely you know the face of the NHS for many people because I think when you come into a hospital, they're the people you see and interact with the most probably. Um, but I think healthcare science is absolutely kind of critical to the system that allows that to work. Um, so there's a there's a very often quoted statistic, um, which I love, which is that 80% of diagnosis in the NHS involves the work of a healthcare scientist, but they actually only make up 5% of the workforce. Mm -hmm. um, so a fairly small staff group, but making massive contributions um, to what we are doing in the NHS. Uh, but I think a lot of their work kind of goes on in the background. Um, so... Uh, a lot of the time, if a healthcare scientist does a good job, you might never even know they were there because the they might be looking after the piece of equipment that a test is performed on. Or if a blood sample is taken, it will go to a lab where healthcare scientists work and what comes back are the results of that test. Um, so you might not directly see them, but they're constantly there working kind of in the background and making a really massive contribution. Yeah, no. So, yeah, so... That is baffling, you know, when you talk about the 80%, you know, of the diagnosis and then 5% of the workforce, you know, those really are mind-bending statistics. And anyone who's used the NHS will know, you know, the amount of work that will have to go into various, you know, different diagnoses and so on. Um, so I think you've answered it throughout the session, but what made you want to promote healthcare science? Is it because you enjoyed it so much? Is it because there's some staffing shortages? You know, what, what made you want to go out there and inspire the next generation of healthcare scientists? Yes, yeah, so I, I think it was for me where it came from. I, I did, um, when, I, when I was doing my training, I took part in kind of occasional schools outreach work, either organised by others or that I kind of tried to organise myself. Um, and that originally was born out of, I just, I just felt people should know about healthcare scientists, that people should know uh, what's going on. But I think what, what kind of grew it for me was I was having conversations with students uh, in schools and um, at other events I was doing. And I think some of them were telling me that, oh, you know, I'm quite good at science, so I'm quite interested in science. Um, I, I, you know, I've got to become a doctor because that's, you know, that's the career that you follow if you're good at science. And... I think that kind of logic would uh, obviously would have stopped my career because I couldn't be a doctor because I just cannot stand the sight of blood. Um, mm -hmm. So that was just never an option for me. So I just wanted to try and show people that there's actually a, a much wider range of careers available in healthcare. Um, and, you know, being a doctor is obviously an absolutely fantastic profession and something to be applauded, but it's not for everyone. Uh, and there are a massive range of different options available. So that's kind of where it grew from, as I wanted to show people that there's a much wider range of options for you or for your career in the NHS. Uh, and also you find that um, 
universities um, quite rightly are able to put a massive amount of money into outreach and support their PhD students, for example, to get involved with schools work and this kind of thing. Uh, and when I was working uh, full time in the NHS, I was finding it much harder to do because obviously the NHS has got different pressures. So, you know, I was find I was sometimes finding it quite difficult to try and get the funding to be able to do a kind of careers event um, or to kind of get the time. It was all quite difficult to arrange. Um, so we founded Science Saves, um, basically it's a, as a so through a social enterprise model. Um, so we were trying to create a kind of sustainable vehicle for healthcare science outreach. So, so yeah, that's where, where the kind of like the idea originated. It was work I was doing or trying to kind of do on the side of a full-time NHS job um, that I kind of basically decided to take out um, after a bit of time kind of struggling in that area. Um, brilliant. Um, and just into and, and, and obviously there's been the challenges of the pandemic like you said since you've started and so on but what, what's been your, your favorite experience of science save so far um you know unfortunately not been able to go into schools as much as you like but has has there been an experience so far that you thought you know wow we've made a different sort of thing in terms of those students so yeah i think and this is kind of going back to slightly so what we would have done with science saves but whilst it, we were obviously doing it through the nhs um i think the thing i like about doing this kind of outreach is is when you see the penny drop with the students. So let's take, for example, that you've, you know, a student's just had some lessons in physics and normally in year 10 they will have done about radiation, you know, alpha, beta and gamma. Um, some radiation goes deeper than others. And then you take them through a workshop, you know, you've got all, getting them hands on with some equipment and stuff. And then you say, well, in radiotherapy then, if you've got a deep tumour, what would you use to treat it? And they'll say, you know, if they're thinking about what they've learned in the curriculum, they'll say, oh, gamma radiation, because, you know, it'll go further. And you're like, yeah, exactly. It's exactly what we use. So, you know, you've taken some simple properties that you've learned at GCSE that you're having to learn by heart for an exam. But you're saying that actually at this level, we're using it. And then you see on their faces that, you know, this stuff that was that's just been a textbook to them comes to life. I enjoy seeing those moments and yeah. yeah, so even if they don't then go on to say, oh, actually, I want to be a healthcare scientist or what have you, just those moments where they can bring that knowledge to life is a really special thing to me. Yeah. And, and seeing that real life context as well will, will no doubt have embedded that knowledge, you know, they, they will have taking that forward into the exam knowing that gamma's you know the most penetrating because they had that session where they looked at you know targeting a tumor so giving them giving them that real life context is you know invaluable um what about yourself Matt? so i, I butted in there. <laughs> um so yeah so it's 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 a tougher question for me because i think um uh obviously we started science saves just before the pandemic struck so i think a lot a lot of the work we wanted to do couldn't happen so there's obviously there's been there's been frustrations around that and obviously you know we wanted to like like everyone else our plans were kind of put on hold um but what i found whilst it's been kind of challenging i found we've had to innovate a little bit more which has uh, brought its own kind of rewards in ways so we launched the science saves youtube channel uh where we've now got kind of interviews with healthcare scientists talking about their career and um, we've got people showcasing the work they do in a kind of quite practical way um, so now these videos are obviously all freely available on YouTube um, and, you know, we know they've been used in some schools to kind of 
get the message out there and we kind of we had to learn a whole new set of skills uh along the way with this you know we had to learn how to edit a video how to get a decent recording um we have you know you, i think you can tell if you watch some of the videos how we've learned about better kind of techniques and better ways to present these things um so there's been some challenges around that but i think kind of the innovation it's forced on us um like it has in so many other areas um i think in the end has been quite helpful that now we've been able to produce some resources um which people can access whenever they want uh, that i hope is going to be quite useful to students and anyone who aspires to a career in healthcare science yeah no brilliant and and just before we we move on um I, we talked about you know your love of star trek Matt, but i just have to point davinda was that a tardis mug i just have to point that out was it, <laughs> it, I, I, it is indeed yeah I, I thought i was you know i was pondering that every time we talk, i was like I, that's definitely a tardis so we, we've got doc two and star trek i just wanted to double check you know the, the... <laughs> typical <laughs> Cashel and my members can complete e-learning activities around key topics across early years, education and care. It can help you stay up to date with the sector and stay relevant with the training that you've already had, or just refresh your memory or let you know if you're interested in a different subject area that you might want to develop in. You can find them for free in the e-learning section at www.cashelalumni.org.uk as long as you're logged in. Um, so what activities do you do in the workshops and, and how do they relate to, you know, practices in healthcare science, for example? So firstly, we might look at radiation in just the general um, home world setting. So we take objects that you might just come across in everyday life and we show that they're radioactive or, you know, sort of explain, you know, sort of show using a radiation monitor. Oh, actually, this is radioactive. But then what we do is we use that to start a conversation about how actually there's radiation everywhere. Um, that's not a reason to be scared um, because actually there's a certain amount that is there and is around and we live with it. And, you know, that's just part of our environment. And so we use that, we build on that because it's to get the idea across. A lot of people have a fear of radiation. It's, it's a buzzword that kind of triggers a bit of, you know, obviously with various incidents that have happened in the past, it can trigger quite fearful thinking. So we use that to kind of open up a conversation of, well, actually, would you go off, uh, not eat a banana anymore because it emits positrons every 75 minutes? Um, would you stop eating low salt salt um, for the same reason? And obviously people then, like I say, it gets you into the mindset of actually there is radiation everywhere. It's just learning what levels are okay and what aren't. Um, my favourite, my personal favourite workstation is um, evidencing the uh, principles of radiation protection using Nerf guns. So um, the three principles of radiation protection are time, distance and shielding. And we use this and we show this by using someone with a Nerf gun, someone simulating time, distance and shielding just by a board or something. And yeah, we show, oh, the person behind behind the board gets less radiation, less Nerf gun pellets than someone who's unshielded. So yeah, the kids always really get into that. They do, yes. They? Seems like, yeah, normally when you are, when, normally when you use the teacher as a target, that tends oh, to yeah. uh, go down really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I quite, I quite like, um, so there are resources that we try and use that are kind of available uh, from other things. So we use uh, a program from the Institute of Physics, which is a simulated radiotherapy treatment planning system. 
Um, so what I quite like about that is it, it's it's very it's a simplified system, but it presents students with um, a kind of simulated CT scan of a patient with a tumour, and they've got to try and use different positions of the radiation beams to do exactly what Dav said earlier about um, giving us a treater, uh, sorry, a, a dose of radiation that's going to treat the tumour whilst protecting all the organs around it. Um, and I quite like that one because it, it you know that's what people like Davinda actually do day in, day out. It's designing those kind of treatment plans. Um, so I think that's what actually one of my favourites, even though it's outside of my, uh, my specialism. But no, I, I do quite like that one because it's very, very, it's very, gives that very good insight into what scientists actually do um, in a kind of game kind what's, of way. What's the initial feedback from students when, when you're doing things like that obviously I can imagine it's quite you know joyful and you know everyone's enjoying it but what's the initial are there, are there lot does that then obviously lead to lots of questions about healthcare science about what you do day to day is there lots of those conversations going on at the same time yeah I think um mm -hmm. it, obviously it depends on the group um and for some it's just um because another demonstration we've got for example is um, an ultrasound Phantom. So it's essentially with a machine, you look into an object and you use ultrasound to look into it. So they might not necessarily be asking the questions about healthcare science as such. Actually, it can sometimes widen out into a conversation about other professions in the field. And that's fine because, you know, we are happy to sort of show the amount of different jobs in healthcare. I think um, one thing I do find quite a lot is particularly... Um, so, for example, if I go into a healthcare science workshop, um, it is just one of those things I found that, yeah, I can often start having conversations with, say, with, say um, girls in particular, and they might sort of say, oh, so what's it like in your field? Obviously, it's physics, um, are there many women? And, you know, it, I think you mm -hmm. can end up having quite general conversations about sort of diversity and that kind of thing, and just sort of... Yeah, people sounding you out about that side of things, which is quite nice. Yeah, yeah I think um, you do. I, th I think we know this kind of thing works. So some of the um, some of the workshops we managed to get in when we were volunteering um, to the NHS. So before we founded it as Science Save, um, we know we're really effective because we had um, a school who where the class later that year kind of voted mm -hmm. to do the medical physics module in their A levels, whereas historically they'd voted for astrophysics and cosmology kind of every year. Um, so we were quite happy with that, that we'd able to get the students interested enough that they actually wanted to do that module in their A-levels. And uh, we had um, at least one of them, we know, went on to do a work experience um, in the department that we were working at the time. So that was a really good outcome, mm. that, particularly from that school that we were able to get that, you know, we knew that people were getting interested in healthcare science and then, you know, seriously scoping out uh, the possibility of a career in it. I think the nice thing as well is actually what you get is not just questions mm -hmm. from the students but from teachers as well so I suppose I mean teachers are busy people I mean you, you're going to be wanting to just sort of I guess teach what you need to teach and you know obviously do the things around your job you need to do but I think them having the space to sort of see well actually this is one of the things my subject leads to um, actually, we got a lot of questions from teachers about those yes, things yes. as well, which is always lovely, actually. Yeah, and obviously, if we, if we can impart some information to teachers as well, that's absolutely brilliant because obviously, you know, they're going to take that into their lessons um, and be able to answer questions from a lot more students than we're ever going to be able to see. Um, so yes, I'm yeah imparting the information into teachers for teachers. Is absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely. Well. The, the, there's a few powerful things you, you, you've talked about there. One, one just being able to put 
actual people to roles. I think that's very important for students to see, um, you know, especially in your case, Devinda, you know, we know the statistics about women in STEM are having those role models actually come in and talk about their roles is, is so powerful for students. I'm an ex-teacher, so I can definitely talk to, you know, about how important it is to, to have people because as a teacher, you get the questions all the time. Why is this important in science? So to actually have someone there answering those questions, um, especially with physics, as you say, that sometimes isn't as popular I'll throw it out there but to have you know people come in and say you know this is a route you can take and this is why it's important I think is is so 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 powerful uh, for students uh, so it really is amazing um, just just to sort of round off then and in, in terms of NCFE um, you know we've talked about the, the potentially being staffing issues and such like to what um, to what level do you think or do you think the T level in healthcare science is going to help with that staffing issue or is it going to help the sector in any way shape or form? I think what the T-level offers is the ability to sort of get someone grounded in the profession early. Um, I do, we often, we do have conversations about mm. the fact that for example to become a clinical scientist the easiest route to become a clinical scientist is to do your degree and then get involved in the scientist training program now because of staffing shortages um, that program is very competitive and it will never produce enough trainees to meet the workforce shortage um, because obviously the problem is isn't when you're short staffed you don't have the capacity to train but then if you don't have the capacity to train you'll always remain short staffed so we have to look wider than things like postgraduate programs and I think the more routes that we can create for people to come in and you know with things like the T-level and what it allows and enables beyond is for people to get that working practice early and then they can build on that so they're entering into the workforce they're doing what they're capable of doing what they become capable of doing and they're becoming useful very quickly but also there's a commitment to develop their skill set as well having staff like healthcare sort of associates in place assistants in place is really important to sort of enable those crucial innovations to happen no perfect um well i think all that's left is to say a, a massive, massive thank you, uh, not just for attending and, and chatting to me, but also for all the work you're doing. It, it's truly amazing. Um, I'm feeling inspired, um, so I'm sure the students do as well in their session. So a, a, a big, big thank you for everything, as well as coming along to chat to me. And uh, thank you to our audience who have listened. Um, and I wish you all the best with the future of Science Saves. And I'm, I'd like to say I can't wait to come along and join a session. And thanks to you at home. Don't forget, for more great content tailored towards those working in care, health and education, you can join us online at www.cashalumni.org.uk. It's free to join our network and you gain access to some great articles, videos and resources to support your career and some information about career development, as well as our members discount and benefits scheme. And if you'd like to feature on a future episode of PodCash, please get in touch at alumni at cash.org.uk. Until next time, take care.